This is your Cyber Path, where the podcast that helps you get your dream cybersecurity job. I'm Kip Boyle, and I'm an experienced hiring manager of cybersecurity professionals. This episode is available as an audio-only recording in your favorite podcast app, and it's also available as a video on our YouTube channel. So just go there and search for your Cyber Path podcast. Our previous episode was a replay of a guest lecture I did for an undergraduate class on the topic of cybersecurity management. Now, whether you work in cybersecurity now or you plan to, you'll be part of an organization's cybersecurity program, or it might be called an information security program. Well, this time I'm sharing the question and answer portion of the session. As I said last time, I wanna share this information with you so that you'll get a better idea of what it takes to lead a cybersecurity program. If you wanna be a CISO one day, a chief information security officer, or you just wanna really support your boss, either way, you need to know this stuff. Okay, before we get to the training, the Q&A, I want you to consider grabbing our free guide and it's called Play to Win, Getting Your Dream Cybersecurity Job. It's a very helpful 20 page visual guide and it describes how taking a capture the flag approach is going to help you compete and win in your job hunting. So if you wanna check it out, just go to yourcyberpath.com forward slash PDF. That's yourcyberpath.com forward slash PDF. And I want you to remember you're just one path away from your dream cybersecurity job. Great, okay. Um... Let's head towards the, the questions from the students because I want, I know that they are uh, chomping at the bit and uh, Raj, you have them. A couple people have asked me about whether they can ask them orally. And so, but I'll let uh, Raj be the kind of the MC of all this uh, on his role. So right. go for it, Raj. Yes, thank you so much, Kip Boyle. That was a really good presentation and you're getting much praise in the chat. The chat has been exploding with questions. And I personally loved your presentation, especially the fonts you used are wonderful. So thank you so much. Uh, first question I would like to ask you, a very uh, repetitive question from students is, what is the meaning of fire doesn't innovate? Mm. And why did you choose this particular title? It's very intriguing. Well, that's one of the reasons why I chose it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I had a conversation with my publisher about title and, um, and so, um, I'm a very practical person, and, and a lot of my initial title suggestions were a lot more mundane. Um, and then uh, as I reached deeper and deeper, this, this one came up. The idea here is that fire is a wonderful static risk that we can use to illustrate how cyber is a very different risk. And so what I'm trying to do here is I'm trying to quickly capture the reader's attention and make them realize that Fire is immutable, which is to say it needs uh, heat, fuel, and oxygen. Those are the three ingredients to fire. And if you can prevent those three ingredients from coming together, or if a fire breaks out, if you can remove one of those ingredients, then, then the fire will, will go out. It'll stop. And so that's why we have all kinds of well-understood ways to use fire at scale. We don't, we don't experience cities burning down anymore because fire gets out of control, which used to happen in, in, the, in the 1800s in US American cities. And um, 
and so now that we understand fire very, very well, a, a, a big fire is a rare event and, and often is deliberately set. But cyber is nothing like that. You once you think you understand what cyber risk really is, you think, oh, I know what the I know what the ingredients are. As soon as you get that figured out and you develop a mitigation for it, well, fire doesn't suddenly figure out how to burn bricks or burn asbestos or what have you, but cyber criminals will figure out how to get around your mitigations. And if you if you think about passwords, just as one example, uh, 20 years ago, nobody used password or the passwords they used were incredibly simplistic and they never changed them. Over the past 20 years, we've evolved from that regime. And so now we have to have complicated passwords. We, our passwords need to change on a regular basis. And now people are telling us don't use the same password twice. And we have pass phrases and password managers and two-factor authentication. And so I hope you can see that over time, we've had to change the way we handle credentials because the ability of cyber attackers to exploit us has increased over time. Right. That's a wonderful analogy. And it, it again goes on to saying it, it's not the tool, it's the user, how he uses it. So Correct. wonderful. Uh, the next question segueing into the password manager you said is there are so many password managers and so many apps and softwares which are coming along and with Google Chrome trying to make it easier and even the policy statements they're making is that we want to render password useless so that the user can log in immediately. So what are the risks involved in that? And should a individual user be concerned and how they can protect themselves against that? Yes. So um, this is a common question that I get. And, um, and, and I think um, there's a fundamental misunderstanding about, about software with respect to security functionality. So the way that you should evaluate software that's going to that's gonna perform a security function is fundamentally different than the way you're going to evaluate software for any other function. And I'm, I, I'm not including nuclear power plants. I'm not including space flight uh, in, in what I'm about to say, because those are, those are life safety uh, situations. And the way you would evaluate that software is, is, is even different. But thinking about commercial grade software, like a word processor or a web browser, your primary concerns there are, is it easy to use? Is it, does it render web pages with high performance and with a lot of fidelity? And how much do I have to spend for it? But the way you buy software that's performing a security function, your number one question is, is it attack resistant? Mm. That's right. your number one question. All other considerations are secondary. So is it easy to use? Does it, does it not cost much? Is it open source? Is it closed source? All of those things are secondary. And I see people making great mistakes by not realizing this fundamental difference in approach. And, um, and so what I would tell you is, is that password managers that are, in, that are primarily intended to provide convenience are not the password managers that you want to use. You want to use one that of course is convenient but primarily one that is going to actually safeguard your passwords. And most browser-based password managers, that is something that you find that's pre-built into a web browser by the people who made that web browser, are known to not provide adequate protection. And so if you want to go get a password manager that is, um, that is more robust, the two that I would recommend right now, and there may be more, but these are the two I know, uh, one password, so the number one in the word password is a wonderful choice. Another good choice is called Last 
LastPass, L-A-S-T-P-A-S-S. Now, I have some problems with some of the things LastPass has been doing lately. I think their Android app is not a good choice because they've added some, uh, some additional code to serve up ads and to, do, uh, and to track usage because they're trying to monetize um, that product. And I think that just creates unnecessary attack surface. So I'm not as much of a fan of LastPass as I used to be, but I still think overall they're a better choice than using a built-in password manager in, in a random web browser. So I hope that helps. That does. And that also makes me question whether I should stop using Google Chrome's password manager. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't use it and I don't recommend it. Right. I see. Now we, we have one student who personally wants to ask you a question. So I'm going to unmute him and he will ask you a question. Himself. All right. Hello, Professor. Uh, my bad. Hello, Mr. Mr. Kip Boyle. Um, thank you very much for your presentation. I found it very engaging. And I must say, if you can keep a university student engaged in, in your entire presentation, I'm sure you have no problems in your field of work. Um, thank you. So my question is, um, from a business perspective, how how do you when you when you advertise yourself when you advertise your let's say consulting services to companies how do you actually balance between informing your potential clients on on the dangers uh, the potential dangers and avoid at the same time balance avoiding um seeming like you're maybe exaggerating or that you're trying to scare them because mm -hmm. uh, i mean and an example for example um is uh, hand soaps you know, at, at a time where, um, I mean, to us, it's very common to wash our hands, you know, hygiene and all that. But, you know, let's say in the 1800s in America, when it just came out, you know, you, you want to tell people to use, you know, hand soap, buy your product. But at the same time, you don't really want to scare them, right? Because I'm sure you can mention some uh, actual occurrences where somebody, you know, maybe they got their hands dirty, they ate food, and maybe they got a you know, some kind of bacteria killed them. Yes, yes. At the same time, you don't want to scare them, right? Right. Uh, okay, so excellent question. And um, and so, yes, and, and this, is an, this is absolutely an issue that I pay attention to. Um, and, and you'll find a lot of security products being sold on, a, on, a, uh, on the basis of fear. Um, this is a very common sales tactic. You'll see it a lot. And you know what? To a certain degree, fear will motivate somebody to make a purchase. But not everybody. Not everybody responds to right. fear in the same way. And this is why I talk a lot about senior decision makers and, and how to get them to respect that there really is a threat and to take it seriously. Senior decision makers are very cynical buyers and they don't tend to, tend to respond to fear. So what I do is I tend to talk about uh, well, I just tend to give them the facts, quite frankly. And I also tend to, to give it to them in the form of stories. And I found that if I can share a story about an organization that had a cyber risk, uh, uh, you know, had trouble with a cyber risk, if they can recognize themselves in that story, then they're more likely to listen to me. Having said that, I, I have had plenty of, ex of, of experiences where I told good stories because stories uh, are very powerful for human beings, right? Facts and figures are not that powerful. There's a little aphorism and it's called um, uh, facts tell, stories sell. Yeah. So you want to tell a lot of stories, but if they don't resonate with the person that you're trying to connect with, stop. Because until that person has a significant personal experience with cyber risk going bad, they're not going to pay attention to you. 
Should you maybe link it to maybe like a cyber hygiene, just like what you've uh, wrote in your in your book mm -hmm. as well? Yes. So you can try you can try analogies, source. you can try metaphors, you can tell stories. I mean, you can go and become an expert marketer and advertiser and you can use all of the methods, the, the known proven methods. Um, and, and you could still strike out because there are just some people out there that are not going to believe you. They're not going to buy what you have to sell and okay. you can't make them. <laughs> mm. And it's frustrating. I assure you, it is. It is very frustrating. Yeah, but that's why I, I quote is. Claude. That's why I, I quote Claude Hopkins as somebody who says people don't buy prevention. People buy things that make them more beautiful, that make them more successful. That's that's how you sell. And and if you think about it, that's how soaps are sold. You use soap as an example. People don't buy soap because it cleans so much as they buy soap because it smells good. Okay, so if you were to, let's say, convince somebody in the COVID era to wash their hands, uh, maybe talk about how, you know, they, uh, they'd scare people less or something. Okay, I understand. Thank you very much for your answer. You're welcome. Yes, thank you so much. That was an excellent question and again, an excellent answer. I also want to segue that into the next question, which is where we talked about that fear sells. And that's how the marketing strategy of many companies is to sell you security solutions. Now, the question is that, what should we do about it? And are these, for example, it's uh, the, the student mentions the company Apple and Apple always says, hey, we are on the side of consumers and we respect your privacy. So we're going to give you utmost security. Do we believe them? And how do we know the, the true secure services from not so marketing gimmicks? Right. That's, that's very difficult. It's a very challenging determination to make. <clears throat> um, it's very, very difficult. And so um, it's going to depend on who you trust. And it's also going to depend on your own skills as an analyst. So for example, when, it, when I had to decide which password manager do I trust, um, I had to use analytical skills and I had to, I had to discover how to measure whether a company was uh, offering a secure product or not. And so I went and downloaded their white paper and I, and I read how uh, 1Password and how LastPass, because they, they take very different approaches to securing the passwords that you entrust with them. But I, I read their white papers and I used my knowledge of, 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 of system security engineering in order to, to know whether or not that what they had written was credible. I also researched how many uh, open uh, public vulnerabilities were were uh, were available in the public vulnerability databases. Um, I also watched how they responded to new vulnerabilities that had been reported that had become public. How fast did they acknowledge those vulnerabilities, and how quickly did they develop a fix and release that fix? So there are ways that you can use right to um, to know the security potential of a product, but sometimes a person is not qualified to do the kind of research that I just described. And so they're going to have to find different ways to, uh, you know, to, to discover that perhaps they'll, they'll read a review that an independent organization has done on that product. And sometimes you just have to make your best choice and, uh, and, and just do the best you can until evidence arises to suggest that that's no longer the right choice. Right. Excellent. That's, that's just like how we should always test our assumptions, whether we're on the right track or not. 
Now, that being said, uh, with the third-party softwares, for example, Zoom, initially it had many bugs and many uh, Zoom raids and all that. Uh, similarly, there are many companies which are sending patches, but sometimes hackers could get in there, like it happened with the, with the antivirus software where the patch itself was mm -hmm. infested with the viruses. What should right. a user be capable of doing to detect whether he's been attacked or not? Because sometimes there could be a lurker he, the system could have been hacked, but we may not know it. How do we de detect that? So the detection of cyber criminals and cyber attackers in general, wh whether they're part of an organized crime gang or whether they're a, a, you know, an, an agent of a government is extremely difficult, very difficult, probably one of the most difficult challenges that we have in our discipline right now. Um, and the way that you would know is going to vary depending on whether it's your personal tech that we're talking about or whether it's an organization's uh, computer network, right? Uh, and so, you know, the way you do detection is going to, is going to vary. Um, a lot of the malicious codes these days that you are to be most concerned about uh, endeavor to make as few visible signs that, that, you're, that you're infected as they possibly can. And that makes things uh, extremely difficult. And so the essential eight is what I keep coming back to because I, I believe that, that those eight practices provide the greatest practical protection that, uh, that you can uh, bring around yourself and that you can bring around your organization. And I'll say a couple of specific um, things that you might wanna think about. So uh, as, an as an individual, you are going to want to avoid doing things like on your mobile device, you don't want to add apps that don't come from Google Play if you use Android or that don't come through the Apple Store if you use iOS. Not that those stores are infallible, but, um, but a lot of these side-loaded apps are, are, are just brimming with malicious code. Uh, same for downloaded software. If you don't want to spend money to buy Adobe, Acrobat or Photoshop, and you instead download a cracked piece of code, you're, you're way more likely to get exploited by doing things like that. Okay. So a lot of times we can stay out of trouble just by avoiding dangerous practices. One dangerous practice that I tell everybody to, to stay away from is the use of public Wi-Fi. To me, uh, you have no idea for any public Wi-Fi that you use. You, you have no way of knowing whether it's a well-run network or whether it's a entirely exploited and, um, and dangerous network. And I, I liken it to a swimming pool, a municipal or a public swimming pool. When you approach the swimming pool, you have no idea whether uh, it's been sanitized correctly. Uh, and, and so, you know, you just don't know. And so in the case of Wi-Fi, it's very easy to avoid public Wi-Fi in most cases by using your mobile hotspot. And, and you'll get better performance anyway because you, you're not sharing the bandwidth uh, with anybody. Now, in terms of an organizational detection method, there are two things that I recommend to my customers. One is the use of a honeypot. And there are many technologies out there that you can get. You can make your own honeypot or you can purchase appliance-based Honey pots. That's a great choice. Another choice is a, is is uh, it's called um, uh, EC Hunter, and, it, and what it does is it specializes in detecting the advanced persistent threat beacons that are used to uh, once you exploit an organization to maintain access to that organization. And so, um, 
So I would highly recommend those two technologies if you're trying to detect um, people on your data network that don't belong there. I see. So the hunter becomes hunted with the trap we set as a bait. That's, that's great. Right. So now you, you mentioned the distinction between individual level and on a uh, organizational level. Mm-hmm. Uh, on individual level, would you say that using uh, practicing the, those hygienes, eight hygienes you mentioned, and additional layer of uh, antivirus softwares with VPN, would that be enough for individuals? I, I believe so. Uh, I would I would add uh, the password manager, and let me let me let me caution you about VPNs. A virtual private network is a security software, and so what I find a lot of people the way they go wrong with a VPN is they 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 use free VPNs. That is a that's not a good idea in almost every situation. A free VPN is not going to protect you. You'll end up with a false sense of security. The only VPNs that are really worth using from a security point of view would be the one that's provided to you by your employer or your school, because that's a professionally run virtual private network that is um, that is not trying to generate revenue. A lot of these consumer grade fr- or free VPNs, the reason they're free is just the same reason why Facebook is free, because you're the product. And so they're typically selling your browsing behavior and their, and their security mechanisms are typically awful and easy to break. Yes. And I mentioned that in yesterday's lecture, you are the product. Thank you for reinforcing that, Kip. <laughs> it's, it's true. Yeah. Do you recommend something like if you're like, these are students here. Do you have a recommended VPN that you think is better than the rest or a couple? Well, I, I think if you're willing to avoid public Wi-Fi. I don't think you need a VPN because your mobile hotspot is going to provide you with a dedicated circuit onto the internet. What I find most students want a VPN for is because they want a location shift so that they can access um, entertainment. Mostly, yeah. And in that case, it doesn't matter what VPN you use. Just don't be mistaken into thinking it's a security device. Yeah, I see a lot of guilty laughs uh, (laughs) on the thing there. So... Definitely, that's uh, that's true there. So, Guilty uh, as charged because CBS sometimes don't show, <laughs> don't stream here. So of course, <laughs> yeah, of course. And I don't, I personally, I'm, I, I don't have a problem with it. I just think that if you if you believe that you're using a security device, I think you're fooling yourself. Right. That the false sense of safety and security. That's that's something we're dealing here. Yeah, now, that, that's awful. You don't want that. True that because it, 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 it kind of makes you unaware that you are actually putting a target on your back and you think you're safe when you're, in fact, attracting more attention to yourself. Yes, yes, that's right. correct. And I think, I think in general, when it comes to bad things that could happen to you in, um, uh, you know, in this profession is a false sense of security is deadly, absolutely deadly, because you think you're secure. And in fact, not only are you, not only are you not secure, but, you, but you're in fact vulnerable. And so you, you're getting the exact opposite with no awareness, whatever. Right. Yeah. That, that's right. Now, uh, let me use so, a follow-up we... here for, for a second, Raj, right. just on Professor <laughs> Proctor, since we're talking about this, because another thing out there is, I mean, when you're the product, which web browser do you use? And I, I'm seeing a lot of stuff that's actually saying, 
go over to something like Brave and use a search engine like DuckDuckGo. And I note that in Brave, it actually gives you, if you want to go incognito, you can actually go into using Tor. Yeah. Talk about that just in kind of general about what you think of that uh, there. And sure. some of it is, be- and I should say part of the thing is why I've been myself looking at this is I'm having to do certain levels of communication with people who are in locations where having communication with somebody in America or something like that could be detrimental to their physical right. health. Right, 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 right. Okay, yes, this is excellent. So what what you're going to do is going to depend on your profile. And I'm so glad you you mentioned um, this the case where uh, somebody may be living um, under the, the supervision of a hostile regime or a regime, a government that's being accused of human rights violations, um, the, 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 you know, the amount of care that you need to take in that situation is, is very, very great. And so there's an organization on the internet called the Electronic Frontier Foundation, the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And if you go to their website, they will provide you with a thorough practical and complete guide to protecting yourself online when you find yourself in um, in that kind of a high stakes situation you know you could you could just be engaged in civil disobedience in the united states and you may need to use some of the of the um, uh, of the methods that they recommend simply so that you won't be tracked so easily by law enforcement not, not that, not that they're going to violate your your civil rights by tracking you, but, um, but, but you may not want to be tracked uh, in in any event. So, so, it, so if if you're operating at that level, go to the Electronic Frontier Foundation and read their guides. Their guides change all the time. Now, if you're just a typical person, a student, a business person, and uh, and you just want to have you know good good privacy, then I'll tell you what I do. I use the Firefox. Uh, web browser. And in the past, I used different web browsers because things change. But today I'm using Firefox. I'm using it with a an ad blocker called uBlock Origin. And the reason I do that is because um, the advertisements that will come into your browser are not served up by the websites that you visit. They're served up by advertising networks. And those networks are a cesspool of malicious code. And so you want to block advertisements, not because you object to advertisements, but because they are a known vector for malicious code. It's called malvertising. And uBlock Origin is an excellent browser plugin that will help you deal with that. I also tend to browse in anonymous mode uh, a lot because I don't, I don't want to be tracked. And I also use a, a functionality, an extension uh, for Firefox called uh, Containers. What containers allows you to do, and I think Chrome has a has a, a, a similar functionality called profiles, but containers in Firefox, it, it you can designate where the cookies are going to live. So if you log into um, Outlook.com under one user ID and password, and then let's say you've got another email address that you want to monitor on that same website, you can have one container for email address one and a separate container for email address two. And those cookies never cross pollinate. They stay in different logical containers. So you can actually be logged in to the same website under two different accounts at the same time. And I just find that to be a a fabulous security 
Uh, well, it's very convenient because I don't have to log out and log back in all the time. But it's also good because it helps me remember not to put information that belongs in one account to accidentally put it into a different account because I forget or because it's just um, inconvenient for me to, to log out and log back in again. So, um, so that's what I recommend. I see. Okay. That's wow. That's wonderful because I've been personally researching on this one. And this, this is wonderful advice because what most people do is they log in in one account and then they create incognito tab so that they can log in with different user ID. That's, that's, that's a great advice. Now, one question that keeps coming is how come Israel is so good at doing all this kind of stuff? We keep reading in the news and should we be worried with Pegasus? Now, this could be yeah. a really uh, opening uh, uh, can of worms right now, but <laughs> I, I want to keep it to the student side of the situation where how come they're so good at this tech? Okay, so you're really asking me two questions, and um, and and I'll I'll answer them in turn. The the caveat is I, I don't I don't have any active um, business or personal relationships with anybody in uh, in the Israeli cybersecurity community. So I I um, so what I'm going to tell you is is a perception, not based on either anecdotal evidence or any kind of study, uh, you know, structured study, but. Um, my perception is, is that Israel is in a perpetual state of war. And when they do cybersecurity, they bring a certain mindset to that work. And that mindset is, I think, more, more than anything, is what distinguishes their ability to produce you know, products that tend to be superior because they themselves have to rely on those products for their own national security. And so that's my, that's my perception. Now, as, as to Pegasus, Pegasus is generally, and, and, and technologies like it, <clears throat> are generally used for the, the purposes that I alluded to earlier, where you would want to go to the Electronic Frontier Foundation. It's, it's typically used in high-end scenarios where you're an oppressive regime and you need to monitor civil disobedience, intellectuals, reporters, uh, uh, people who come to your country as part of a non-governmental organization. So a, a, a typical student should not expect that they're going to be targeted for that type of surveillance. Right. I see. I see. Wonderful. So... That being said, uh, that was about Israel. Now, let me move to a different continent. What do you think about Japan? Do you think Japanese companies are in a better position or they're insulated because they are part of the world, but they have their own paradise island here or <laughs> they, because the, the language is different, it, it kind of insulates them in some way? I don't believe that's true. Um, I am now speaking as somebody who has uh, who has been to Japan, has done business with Japanese companies uh, on, on uh, cybersecurity uh, projects and products. And my observation is that they, uh, they don't have any inherent advantage that, that I've ever observed. I think that, um, that they are just as uh, vulnerable as, as anybody connected to the internet can be. I don't think they're especially vulnerable, but I don't think that they're especially, um, uh, uh, you know, set aside that, right. that they would be attacked less. Right. 
So there's no distinction for cyber solutions, whether it's a Japanese company or non-Japanese company. In in terms of attackers, it's it's all the same. I, I, yeah, I, d- I don't think there's any material distinction. Right. I understand. Thank you. That that was a, one of the biggest questions because uh, about 60% of students are Japanese and other remaining are non-Japanese. So this question was one of the biggest mm-hmm. uh, many mm-hmm. times asked by the students. Uh, I, I, I will... Let, let me also add, in terms of um, of my experience uh, working in Japan on cybersecurity, um, my experience is that um, is that is that the state of the art uh, for technology, for enterprise technology, not for consumer technology, but mm-hmm. for enterprise technology, tends to be a little behind what I experience in the United States. Um, I and and I also have noticed that. The style of doing business in Japan, um, the way that decisions are made, also has an effect um, on on the ability to uh, understand the cyber risks and to make effective risk management decisions. Right, right. Now, uh, there's one more thing I, w- I want to ask, and probably with that, we'll conclude our Q&A session. And there are many questions I'm having and I'm still getting questions. So what I, I think I'll do is I'll curate a list of Q and A's, and if it's possible, Mr. Boyle, I'll send that to you via an email. And of course, whenever you get time, you can get back to us on that. That'll be fine. But yeah, thank you so much. That being said, uh, one last question before we go is: uh, We see many, many companies getting their data leaked, and with that, the user IDs and passwords are getting leaked. What is this tendency that's happening and does it come down to personal choice of hackers, whether they're being ethical or not ethical? And what, what do you see in this situation? What's your view of it? Um, uh, well, I'll, I'll acknowledge that, that there are a lot of data leaks happening. And, um, and I think the difficulty, of course, is that the controls that will either fail and allow data leaks or will resist cyber attack and data leakage are outside of our ability to influence or monitor. And so we we have to take risks in, in terms of who we trust with our data. And sometimes we don't have very good choices because we, we have to do business and, um, and, and, and sooner or later, we do have to trust. We have to choose somebody and, and often many different organizations to trust with our personal information. Now, my, my advice is to, is to make the best choices that you can and to rely on independent analysis where it's available to help you make those choices, but that you also need to protect yourself in the, in the case that your, your choice turns out to, to not have been a good one. And so I go back to the use of strong uh, authentication, to use two-factor authentication everywhere that it's available, because then if your user ID and password should be compromised, then the the fact that you use a second factor of authentication will protect you. Not that two-factor authentication is impervious to attack, it's not. Um, and to that end, I would say make sure that when you have the chance to use um, a, an app like a Google Authenticator or a Microsoft Authenticator or Duo, that you're going to want to use those forms of second factor authentication as opposed to receiving a code uh, as an SMS text. So 
if, if all you can do is SMS text codes, choose that. But if you can choose an app-based form of second factor authentication, you should always use that because it's less uh, uh, subject to uh, exploitation. And then if, you, if you're doing, uh, if you're living and working in, in the United States, my recommendation is that you uh, put a freeze on all of your credit records at, at the major credit bureaus, that you freeze credit checks, not just monitor them, but actually shut them off. Because that's the only way I know to prevent your personal information from being used to, uh, to exploit uh, you know, your, your credit records, you, you, you know, monitoring will only tell you that you've been exploited. Freezing will actually prevent you from being exploited. That's right. And, and prevention is, is better than cure, as we learn, because the, the cure is worse than the disease. Now, there are many yes. questions. I'm, I'm still getting questions. Do you, do you mind answering a few more before we go? I have I'd time. I really appreciate it. I right, have time if you, you have time. Thank you right. so much. Thank go you go so ahead. much. So, so one question we're we getting is, uh, you, you talk a lot about whether it should not be qualitative uh, measurement of risk, it should be quantitative, and it should be usually on a scale of one to 10. Uh, how do you measure that? What, what are the parameters in which you gauge the depth and extent of these risks? Right. So, um, you know, so here's my book, right? <laughs> my book talks all about this. Um, and and you know, and, and and part two of my book has has um, uh, you know explains in detail how I recommend uh, people should do this. And the uh, the essence of this zero through ten scale is um, uh, there's is is that there's a scorecard. And if you happen to have a copy of my book, and if you turn to page one hundred and sixty five, you'll you'll actually see. A, um, a scorecard where I define what is considered to be a zero, a three, a five, an eight, or a 10 um, by providing what I call testable statements. So as an example, a three in, in the zero through 10 scale that, that I suggest is defined as uh, an, our organization sometimes does this, but unreliably and rework is common. And so this is with respect to a, a, a control that you're using to, to manage cyber risk. Um, and so when you can use these testable statements to translate what actually happens into a number, then you can aggregate those numbers and you can use um, some statistical analysis, which I talk about in the book, uh, in order to move from a purely qualitative form of risk management more towards a quantitative form without requiring the use of advanced statistical methods, which if you can use them and if your senior decision makers do like them, then I, I think that's fine. But again, I, I find that, um, that senior most senior decision makers that I've worked with don't have the time or the expertise to, um, you know, to, to use advanced statistical methods. So I, I hope that addresses the question. Yes. Thank you for putting that on the screen. Yes, that it, it does address the question because it's, it's many, uh, in one thing in risk management is that eventually you have to tie it down to numbers and it's hard to put a number on risk and then uh, convey it significantly. So it takes a bit of storytelling to convince the people in, in charge of decision-making that, yes. hey, this is big deal. 
right? So uh, one more thing I would like to ask you is that many times what happens is many companies set up their, their business contingency plans and, and they have these uh, sites for, for disaster recovery sites and fallback and fallback or fallback. Then they test it on piece of paper and everything looks good that they have turned around time off, you know, within the specified time. However, when uh, the, the rubber meets the road, things don't go out smoothly. So do you think there is uh, a lack or lethargy in, in senior management where they, they, they do invest in these technologies, but they don't keep up or they don't follow up? Mm-hmm. My observation is that this goes back to, uh, in part, this idea of negative visualization the, the, the allocation of, of, of some uh, time and energy to thinking about what could go wrong and how one would respond in, in a situation where something went wrong. A lot of the disaster recovery and business continuity programs that I've observed are in place because there was a, 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 a legal mandate or a regulatory requirement and I would I would characterize those programs as being um, as being weak and as as being designed primarily to to check a box on a checklist right. as opposed to provide genuine protection to the organization in the case of um, uh, of a failure or in the case of a cyber attack um, but but then I also want to say that um, that even in an organization that with sincerity and, uh, and, and with sufficient resources commits themselves to doing the best plan that they can, may still find themselves in an actual situation where the plans are not good enough. And right. so that gets back to a saying that I believe in very much, which is that Plans are worthless, but planning is everything. So the act of planning is how you will prepare for a situation that you cannot plan for. That's right. That's right. Thank you so much for that. That was really illuminating. Uh, one, one last question before we go, and this is truly the last question I'm going to ask. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Yesterday we had a bit, bit. Uh, mm, I, I, I believe a dark discussion that we are the product of all these IT softwares and Pegasus is there and this is happening and that's happening, and there was this general uh, feeling that is it already over? Do we still have some ray of hope, or we are almost finished? Should should this even all matter? Um. <laughs> um. Well, I haven't given up, so I'll say that. Um, I, but, I, but I will say that, uh, that the situation is probably worse than we realize and, um, and that it's going to continue to be difficult for, for quite some time. And, um, and so I think the correct course of action is to, um, is to continue to do your very best despite the fact that we are living in a gray zone, very little of what we see is, is black or white or is, you know, can, can be definitively understood. 
And I, I, I want you to realize that we're living in a time that is genuinely revolutionary, that this is in fact the, the practical definition of a paradigm shift. I believe that the world is grappling with a change that is just as serious and just as fundamental as the advent of nuclear weapons. We okay. don't understand cyber. We don't know how to manage it. We don't understand what the rules of cyber war are. We are living in a state of cyber war and we don't understand its limits. We don't understand active defense and we need to understand active defense and we're just trying to figure it out. So this is the world we live in and we just have to continue to be vigilant and do the best we can. Well, actually to, to end on a bright note, I'm going to ask you to do something um, that you talked, you talked about telling a great story. Can you tell us like one great story with maybe some humor about the situation or what have you that kind of might illustrate a great point about this, everything we've talked about, but also uh, put a smile on our face at the end. Sorry to put you on the spot like that. Yeah. <laughs> we all have these funny stories that sometimes we hear. Like, <laughs> Well, um, I, I, I don't know if this is going to qualify, but this is, this is, you know, kind of, you know, what's, what's coming up for me. And, um, and I hope you don't think it's too self-serving. But recently I was working with the chief technology officer of one of my customers. Um, this customer is a uh, professional sports team based in the United States. And, and we, were, we were dealing with a very tricky uh, problem that had to do with mobile computing and, um, <clears throat> and the security of their mobile devices. And, um, and we were unpacking the problem and we were trying to understand it and analyze it and figure out what to do. And in the middle of this uh, working session, uh, he, he sort of took a moment and he looked at me and he said, this is so complicated, I don't understand how small companies deal with this because you know he's not part of a small company he he's part of a well-resourced organization and he's he's putting in uh you know a reasonable amount of care and attention to it and um and so uh, my podcast co-host jake the the cybersecurity lawyer was also in on that meeting and so we kind of looked at each other and we said that's a podcast episode <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, so we did in fact create, and we will publish on August 31st, a podcast epi episode called Cybersecurity for Small Companies. And in that, I, I will actually talk about how you do it. And, and I mean organizations with as few as five employees or as many as um, 500. The way that you do cybersecurity management for them is different than the way you do it for, for, for larger companies and for enterprises but it absolutely can be done. And, um, and so sometimes, you know, in the middle of my work, there's inspiration. <laughs> <laughs>